Welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, Law and Liberty, Public Discourse, and the Washington Free Beacon. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. As listeners know, most of our episodes are grouped around particular themes. We've done a series on totalitarianism, another on liberal education, and now we're in the midst of some episodes on American identity and culture. About a year ago, we released our first episode in an occasional series on minor works by authors of the great books. We discuss Soren Kierkegaard's Two Ages. Soon we'll be releasing a conversation on Rousseau's Letter to D'Alembert. The episode you're about to hear is part of a new occasional series on chapters or parts of great books which tend to be ignored or not much talked about. Our guest is Matt Dinan. Matt is back. He first podcasts with us about Kierkegaard about a year ago. He's an associate professor in the Great Brooks Program at St. Thomas University in New Brunswick, Canada. He does research on classical Christian and contemporary political philosophy and is currently writing a book called Kierkegaard Socratic Political Philosophy. His essays and reviews have appeared in Perspectives on Political Science and the Review of Politics. Matt is also a contributing writer at the Hedgehog Review, and he has a new substack called Prefaces. He's back to discuss a series of brief and fascinating chapters in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics on the social virtues, gentleness, friendliness, truthfulness, and wittiness. Check out Matt's essay, Be Nice, first published in the fall 2018 issue of the Hedgehog Review, where he touches on some of these virtues. When I conceived of the idea for this occasional series on underappreciated parts of great books, I thought each of these episodes would be quite short, brief, quick-hitting chats about something very particular. Well, as you'll hear, Matt gets rolling on social virtues, as advertised, but we also hit on the niceness of Atlanta Canadians, the importance of laughter to freedom and community, toddler humor, Norm MacDonald, and last but not least, a theory of Larry David. No micro-episode can contain Matt, plus I'm much too nice to cut him off. So here's a very nice, normal-sized episode full of wit and wisdom. Welcome, Matt, back to the Enduring Interest podcast. It's great to great to see you again. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So you're the uh, the guest I turn to when I'm doing something experimental with the with the podcast. So we'll see. I hope it works out as well this time as it did the last time. Why don't you tell us first? So we're going to talk about some more obscure chapters, or maybe chapters that are just usually ignored by scholars in the ethics. Um, but why don't you tell us first what you like about reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics? What what brings you back to the to the book um, besides the fact that um, you have to teach it or maybe you don't have to, you choose to. So. <laughs> yeah, it's self-inflicted uh, teaching. But no, I, I love Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics because it is about the most important question, which is, what is happiness and what is the best life for a human being? And many texts are about this in a an implicit way. They have kind of views about it, but Aristotle is, is interested in analyzing not only what is the best life for a human being, but also I think he's very interested in asking what it means to ask the question and what are the complications um, in trying to figure out what is a good life for a human being. So I think that there's in the in the ethics there are a lot of of times that Aristotle will give us kind of gentle suggestions and will raise uh, questions about the the things which seem to have been presented as as his own views. So it's also a book that can teach us a lot about how to how to read great books, how to read ancient texts, because it seems to be constantly interrogating itself. And it seems to be interested not only in answering this question, uh, what is the best life for a human being, but perhaps it is itself, it, it itself provides an experience of the education it describes. Hmm. So early on in the book, Aristotle raises this puzzle, um, which 
uh, was brought to my attention by a wonderful scholar we were talking about earlier, uh, Rana Berger, in her book, Aristotle's Dialogue with Socrates, which is a probably, in my view, the best commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics you can read. And um, early on, Aristotle argues that here he raises this kind of problem or kind of paradox that uh, people who this this inquiry will not be fruitful for people who haven't had a certain kind of moral education already, who don't understand things about virtue. Um, and uh, and he says, you kind of have to have an experience of these things in order to fruitfully make this inquiry to study the political science, the political art that he's describing in the ethics and politics. And, and of course, the problem with that is that if you've had that education already, why do you have to study political science? You're already on the, the road to being happy. And so you kind of lose that that impetus or motivation to to do this study, and you know, Berger notes that this would make it sort of a book for for no one. <laughs> the other alternative, of course, is that it's a book for people interested in the not just the what the that of their moral education, but the why of it. Like, why is this question about happiness so persistent for us? Um, why is it is it very difficult to kind of understand, you know, you would assume that if you're happy, you'd simply know. <laughs> um, but human beings are complex uh, in ways that uh, make it very difficult to to uh, not just to be happy, but to know that when you're happy. And so, so Aristotle's ethics, because it not only presents an account of the good life, but seems to be constantly interrogating itself and providing an experience of the things that it describes, is uh, a book that I think is endlessly rich for me and different parts of it will kind of speak to me in different ways. And I would say that in my career as a scholar and teacher, re returning again and again to the Nicomachean ethics has made me a much better reader. It's kind of um, become an odd, you know, Plato wrote before Aristotle, but when I go to Plato now, I'll, I'll say, oh, that's an Aristotle move, right? He's kind of yeah. doing things that I associate with Aristotle and later thinkers as well. And so kind of paying, Aristotle has, I think, educated me in, in how to read. And so I love sharing that with my students. And uh, eventually someday I'll, I'll, uh, I'll return to it as a scholarly text too. That's great. Why don't we start? So Aristotle, one of I think one of the definitions of happiness that he gives pretty pretty early in book one is happiness is the activity of the soul in accordance with virtue. And then quickly he introduces this distinction between moral virtues on the one hand and intellectual virtues on the other. So could you just say a quick word about the difference between those two kinds of, of virtue? And, the, and then we'll get into these uh, under underappreciated, under-advertised social virtues. Yeah. Um, so Arist at the beginning of the ethics, Aristotle um, divides up moral and intellectual virtue. Um, and moral virtue has to do with the uh, part of the soul uh, that, is, that is passionate, he says, um, whereas intellectual virtue is concerned with uh, the calculating or thinking part of the, of the soul. And so early in the ethics in book one, and this is one of the kind of moves that I was alluding to before, he gives us an extremely simplistic account of the soul. Like we might note if we're readers of Plato, for instance, that the most famous image of the soul uh, that, com that comes out of Plato, or one of them is that the, is the tripartite soul from the Republic, right? The idea that Socrates has there that the soul divides in three, while Aristotle divides it kind of very simply in two at the beginning and says, okay, well, there will be moral virtues which correspond to um, the kind of passionate and desiring part of the soul and intellectual virtues that correspond to the uh, uh, to the uh, part that knows, the part of the soul capable of, of intellection. And um, the uh, other important difference is how those virtues are taught. Moral virtue, Aristotle says, develops through habituation and intellectual virtue develops, uh, or, or rather needs to be taught. Um, so this would, would seem to be the other main uh, distinction. Um, and it's just, just I, for people who are perhaps approaching the ethics for the first time, or even more experienced readers, what this means, Aristotle says, well, in order to know what happiness is, we'll investigate moral virtue first, and then intellectual virtue. 
Um, but interestingly, he ends up, he does that. And if that were all of the Nicomachean ethics, it would end uh, in book six after Aristotle right. had kind of completed that investigation. But in book seven, Aristotle says that, well, we need to begin again for some reason. Um, and uh, introduces the problem of, of self-control, which uh, is where I would will to do something good. I know what is good and yet fail to do it, right? I'm, I'm not strong enough I'm, uh, in order to see through my, my sense of what is right. Um, and and uh, his example for why this would happen um, is an intellectual example. So um, while he, uh, so he suggests, for instance, that um, I can hold two kinds of um, principles at the same time, and um, and that my intellect could lead me astray. So, for instance, I think the example he uses is um, I can know that sweet foods are good and that sweet foods are bad at me, bad for me, and I'm not necessarily going to uh, make the connection about what this should like. I could be led astray by the proposition that sweet foods are are good. Um, and pursue that, and uh, that can can lead me to make a decision that uh, I don't really want to make. Uh, and so it seems then that uh, actually the moral and intellectual parts of the soul have um, perhaps more to do with one another than they initially seem. And in fact, if you pay attention to um, the way that Arist what Aristotle says about prudence in Book Six on intellectual virtue, but also I think crucially for our discussion today, um, what he says about justice in book five, justice looks is is supposed to be, it's, it's a sort of peak for moral virtue. It's this pivot between moral and intellectual virtue, but it's extremely kind of uh, arithmetical, mathematical, um, very cerebral, a kind mm -hmm, of implementation mm -hmm. of what justice is for Aristotle. Um, and so that, I think, raises interesting questions about about whether this original division is um actually fully if it's rigorous or if it's true or if it exists in nature or whether it's it is is a part of aristotle's kind of uh teaching us about what the good life is in the ethics yeah that makes sense yeah i like the the example of of justice with deliberative and corrective and there is my my students were struck by hey there's math in the in this philosophy book what's what's, what's going on no, no one told me this was gonna happen so. i thought this was a safe space and all of a sudden you're making me think yeah. about proportions and this a humanities feel type type deal but uh suddenly there's proportions yeah so let's let's talk about these social virtues so he lists 11 moral virtues in the course of uh was it starts in in book three and goes all the way through through um books four and five, Justice has a, an entire book written about it. But in the middle uh, of, of the discussion of the moral virtues, you have four virtues, some of which are anonymous. So we, sh yeah, we should say for our, for our listeners that um, in a number of cases, he, he says the virtue that he is describing is kind of nameless. And he, he describes it by giving an adjective or something, but he doesn't, he, you know, he'll say this doesn't really have a name. Um, and so th these virtues are gentleness, friendliness, truthfulness, and lastly, wittiness, or you could call it tact as well. And so may maybe just say some some general things about the importance of of those four virtues in the context of this list of, of 11, and then we can kind of get into maybe one or two of them in particular. Yeah, the uh, social virtues. I I also sometimes call them the Ringo virtues because they they seem a little bit less impressive than the other virtues. Um, after you've you've made it through some of the the greatest hits, you know, Aristotle begins his discussion of of moral virtue with uh, a discussion of courage, which is obviously the most important virtue. Although it's a very idiosyncratic account of courage, turns out that you know, being courageous to defend your your friends and family is not actually true courage because you're not doing it for the sake of the noble. And so we have, you know, virtues, courage and moderation, liberality, which has to do with, uh, uh, or generosity has to do with small uh, giving of money and gifts. 
Um, and then magnificence, which is uh, interestingly like liberality, except for large amounts of money and large gifts. Uh, and then greatness of soul, um, which is something like the pinnacle of the virtues we're told. It's Aristotle uses this fascinating word. He says it's the cosmos of the virtues or the ordered whole of the virtues and makes them all greater. And it's a virtue having to do with great honors. So we have this interesting kind of ascent up to greatness of soul. Um, and, uh, and yet if he, so honor Aristotle says at this point in the ethics is the greatest of external goods, right? So we had two virtues to do with money, liberality, and magnificence. And you would expect, like, if we're going to move on to honor, we do the virtue having to do with small honors first, right? Um, uh, but instead we get greatness of soul first. It's like Aristotle is so excited by magnificence and this person who might give these great, these great gifts, that uh, he 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 skips the virtue concerning small honors and goes right to the the great honors and we have this uh, and instead of uh, describing the virtue in a more kind of analytical way as he does in other places he gives us a kind of character sketch of um, the great souled individual or the great souled man um, because it seems to be this virtue that is uncommonly. Uh, associated with manliness, right? He says that the great souled man will kind of, you know, walk slowly and and speak with a low voice. And it's a it's a, um, a, a kind of portrait almost of what this virtuous individual would be like. And so, um, you know, uh, following a number of, of kind of scholars, I have uh, my uh, I have questions about what this exemplar of the great of the great souled man is supposed to do. It does Aristotle fully endorse this virtue as as a kind of peak of moral virtue or is it actually showing us a kind of problem with moral virtue that a commitment to the noble to doing things for their own sake is required for virtue right like if i'm only courageous because i love my city you can think about the iliad for example right um mm -hmm. if i if i'm defending my think about hector if i'm defending my loved ones um, it might actually lead me to be brutal and uh, and uh, uh, um, to be to be brutal and violent and uh, filled with rage uh, rather than um, actually uh, having a proper orientation towards fear of death, um, which is what courage is kind of supposed to be. Right. It's the ability to act in the face of um of the potential for, for death, which Aristotle says is the most fearful thing. And so, so this commitment to nobility that Aristotle uh, says characterizes um, moral virtue comes to a sort of dramatic head with greatness of soul, where you have somebody who uh, is so much concerned with the greatest honors that he seems not to care for honor at all, because only the greatest honors from the very best people would motivate him. And so you get this image almost of someone who's almost kind of godlike and uh, uh, and whose commitment to beauty or to nobility is such that, you know, he's um, concerned with with beautiful and useless things because they show his self-sufficiency more, as is something Aristotle says. Right. Um, and is ironical towards the many and uh, acts infrequently. Um, uh, and only with with a view towards the most impressive things that one can do. And um, and this person, needless to say, is perhaps, or it's actually needful to say, is not super, is not a great citizen, I think, of a city. Uh, and is perhaps not, you know, I say in uh, an essay I read that, that he'd probably be a terrible party guest. Right, you wouldn't want the great just stand standing in the corner looking down on everyone, maybe. <laughs> yeah, looking down on everyone, and um, and you know, uh, speaking little, right? Because people who who speak often are are, are fundamentally kind of unserious. I mean, guilty as charged, I guess. But, uh, and, and so it's in this context um, that the social virtues uh, kind of arise. Um, after we've had this, what looks like a sort of ascent to greatness of soul, um, we start having virtues which are notable because they, first of all, don't seem as impressive. They don't seem as important. The Ringo virtues, you know, um, 
like Ringo Starr's uh, kind of arguably greatest song is, um, you know, Octopus's Garden. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> truly kind of wonderful and goofy kind of uh, addition to the you know, post Beatles, uh, musical oeuvre of the, of the Beatles, but yeah, they're, but they are virtues concerned with social life, uh, virtues, which deal with the sorts of problems perhaps created by greatness of soul, or at the very least, the parts of human life that the great souled man is not concerned with. So, so are they not, would you say though, if, if, if it's true that greatness of soul is supposed to be a kind of crown of the virtues that crown won't include these social virtues? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about the portrait we get is that it ob they obviously don't, right? Uh, he, um, he is, for instance, said to be ironical. Uh, irony is um, a vice, according to Aristotle, relative to honesty or truthfulness. Right. So um, there's, I, I mean, I think there are a number of things. More seriously, I think the question is, um, uh, I mean, you can't imagine, I, I think the, the greatest comparison is between the virtue of wit, um, which is, Aristotle uses this word, the, uh, he makes a pun when he's describing wit, he says that this person will uh, be a eutrapola, uh, somebody who is good at turning, is does good turns, um, which sounds like the, the Greek word for, for eutrapola, somebody who's, who turns well, who's able to move things well. That contrasts, I think, with the silence and the lack of motion we associate with the great souled man who's almost kind of stuck in place, as you say, standing silently in the corner, right. everyone at the party, not telling jokes, not attempting to give pleasure to other people as a sort of as as a good in itself. So the social virtues, I think, draw our attention to what has been left out of moral virtue and Aristotle's presentation of it to that point, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. our relations to others. Right. So as Aristotle builds again towards justice, which is another kind of peak of virtue, Aristotle says one of his definitions of justice is that it is the use of complete virtue uh, with respect to others. Um, it's almost as if the social virtues are kind of, kind of saying, Aristotle's kind of saying like, hey, like, have you thought about what might, might have been left out so far? That right. yeah, um, yeah. these virtues are going to exist for human beings who we know from Aristotle's politics are political beings, and this is supposed to be political science, and yet moral virtues are directed towards nobility and uh, provide us with a kind of freedom from, um, from others, uh, uh, but because we're motivated not by any standard that's given to us by others, um, by others' expectations, which is of course good and use and necessary, but uh, taken too far um, presents problems for social life. For right. social life. So, so friendliness, he says, is is the virtue of of treating others well who aren't actually your friends. So being well, be, being able to be civil and decent to to people you really don't know and. Um, we were talking about this in, in one of my classes that this seems like a virtue that's kind of been lost in part maybe because of uh, isolation and, and COVID, right? People, young people especially, just don't know how to walk into a room where they don't know anyone, right? And and be able to kind of inhabit that that place comfortably and introduce themselves and get to know people that they don't know. And so that's the kind of thing he means with friendliness, um, truthfulness, You've already mentioned one deficiency would be being ironic, being overly. What's what's the excess in truthfulness? No, I'm blanking. Is it? Oh, the boaster. The boast, right? Of course. Yeah, kind of boastfulness. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then and then um, wittiness and tact. The deficiency would be humorlessness, right? Yeah. Being unable to be moved yeah. at all towards um, towards laughter versus what he calls uh, buff some sort of buffoonery you know, yes. <laughs> jo joking in the wrong situations or joking about the wrong things. And so I think, yeah, I think those virtues taken together, right, really give you a a nice, pretty full portrait of of what it would mean to to just act well in social life. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I was struck by your, your account of how it corrects this strange portrait you get with greatness of soul. 
but rereading these chapters too just just made me um think about just how full-bodied a portrait these pretty short chapters end up being right if, if you're just trying to articulate especially if you think about your children and how you want to raise them to be able to you know develop well socially and 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 meet people and flourish in the world you know these you could do worse than read those four chapters yeah and i i think that there's this interesting debate um about how much you know i i'm canadian <laughs> from the uh um the uh east coast of canada in particular which is a part of the world kind of known for uh hospitality and um and even among canadians atlantic canadians are the nice canadians there's a there's a whole musical about it um come from away which was oh, a, really uh, yeah it's a it, it's a it's a musical set in newfoundland um uh during 9 11 this actually happened in my hometown miramichi as well but um, they needed places to, that had big, long runways to land these jumbo jets that all needed to come down out of the sky kind of immediately. And so there were all these flights coming over from Europe um, or going to Europe from uh, from the states that fly right over Atlantic Canada, of course, on their way over the North Atlantic. And anyway, they had to ground everything at once. And there's an old uh, disused NORAD base in Gander, Newfoundland, and they they had to land hundreds of people um, in this tiny little town in Newfoundland, and um, and these kind of Europeans and and Americans uh, end up uh, living in Newfoundland for you know over uh, it was a couple of weeks before they were able to kind of figure out what was going on and uh, and get people up in the air again. But it's yeah, there's a there's a whole musical about the friendliness of these uh, of these <laughs> newfies um, who were able to take in all these people from all over uh, all over the world during this kind of horrific time. And uh, so, so that's a lot of pressure for you to conform to this, to this yeah. uh, stereotype. Well, to the, the kind <laughs> of nice, and, it, and it's funny because growing up, um, I sort of like resented this. My parents are um, over the top friendly, the, the nicest people you've kind of ever met. My dad is, you know, um, the most jocular person I've ever met in my life. He will have a conversation with everyone, um, uh, uh, anybody, um, and is very disarming. And my, my mother too is, um, is one of the, the kind of most tactful people I've ever met in my life. Um, but uh, yeah, so growing up, I sort of bristled at this and I thought, well, this is a way of, of avoiding telling the truth about the world. <laughs> it's just, you know, like everyone is always trying to be so friendly and it's like, this place is poor. You know, like we, it sucks here. Like we need to have some more self-respect and work harder, and uh, and then you know focus less on having a good time and being the funnest part of Canada. Like, how about some jobs? It was kind of like one of my attitudes, and and just I I kind of thought of myself as a sort of little teenage. I didn't know what so who Socrates was, but I thought of myself as sort of deep and and thoughtful, and therefore kind of cynical. And it was only you know after I lived in the 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 states for a number of years that you know people repeatedly commented on uh the fact that i was that i was sort of nice that i started thinking more about this issue um because i didn't feel that way <laughs> i didn't think that i was particularly nice but it really is the case uh up here when everyone says hi to everybody when you're walking down the street and uh and they're and part of it i think is um, you know, is the size of Atlantic Canada is small. Um, it's relatively kind of culturally homogenous and and this sort of thing. But it's also, I think, I think also that the social virtues are virtues, which means that they need to be practiced. And so if you're somewhere where there's an expectation that you're not going to like put your eyes down and and kind of blow by somebody on the on the sidewalk, then um, over time, you learn how to do this. Uh, you learn how to, you learn, I think, uh, or rather it becomes a disposition, right? That friendliness is, you know, a virtue where, which is the result of being the sort of person one is, Aristotle says, <laughs> um, uh, and giving pleasure to others. So it's kind of living in the world in such a way that you are kind of not closed off to the claims that other human beings might make on you. Um, and, and so one of the things that's neat, I think about the social virtues is that they, as you say, they correct against some of the anti-socialness that has developed, 
during the pandemic, you know, you think about, and one thing that I think is really interesting is think about like, you know, we're on Zoom right now. Um, think about how easily how easily one can mute on Zoom. And you you know, you were talking about students learning how to make small talk and and be friendly to one another in class. Like, well, everybody stays on mute, you know, by default, right? When they come, when you arrive right on time for a Zoom meeting, right? No one shows up early because it's awkward. Um, right. Everybody stays muted until they're called on, right? It's kind of good etiquette because it's really annoying actually to have somebody's kind of noise in a way, um, uh, or somebody's kind of noisy rustling kind of uh, <laughs> amplified for your headphones, yeah. whatever. And um, like what it what it is, I think, is control, right? And the social virtues are precisely about not attempting to control others but attempting to control yourself so that you can live with others. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's very easy to be grumpy and to be dour and to not make the effort to, um, uh, like it's much easier to not make the effort to, uh, to talk to people, um, to uh, make a joke or make an observation or, or to um, uh, involve your, involve others in your life in any way right um yeah and yeah. And, so, and so this kind of pre-existing you know i think individualistic i think we might say in the tocquevillian sense um mm -hmm. stream uh in uh our society i think was badly exacerbated by um uh the last few years and so the social social virtues are a thing that an individual person can do or can attempt to take on uh, to kind of um, both acknowledge that one is political, right? Acknowledge mm -hmm. that one is a political being in relationship with others, um, but also to create those same virtues in, in others. Right. So I think that there's a, like, if the great souled man is a sort of problem for political life because he demands honors which are not easy to to give and is on the one hand reliant upon the political community or dependent upon the political community for honor but also kind of transcends that community through his own sense of his no own nobility the social virtues remind us that we're tied uh to others and that the good life um happiness uh, is not something that one can pursue on one's own. Right. And if you want, in your essay, we'll say explicitly this essay, it was originally published in the Hedgehog Review called Be Nice. It was published in, um, what, fall of 2018. Yeah. You can Google it. You you make the case that the social virtues, you, you can kind of um, think of them in a way as stand-in for what people might be desiring when they talk about the need for civility and civility, the way we talk about it now is tends to be, you just kind of let people have their say, right? Even if you disagree with them, um, you you are responsible enough and kind of self-disciplined enough to be able to let them state your view so you can state yours. And if as long as we have these kind of formal rules about, you know, letting letting people speak and and make their case for this or that issue, it'll be fine. But I think um, what you show in the essay and, and what what uh, is implied by invoking the Aristotle uh, social virtues is that what we call civility is probably the product of a lot of habituation. You know, it's it's not just this abstract commitment and, and self-discipline to, to being able to sit in a room with a Democrat if you're a Republican or vice versa. It's actually being habituated um, to be to be friendly and to be witty and um it's just much more uh, of a complex kind of i don't know moral muscle than you might than you might think so um, yeah. i wanted to, i wanted to ask you about wittiness in in, in particular mm -hmm. um you present wittiness and i think aristotle does this too in the chapter as as consistent with with tact that the witty person is tactful about um, when he tells the joke, uh, the, the content of the joke. Um, but it, isn't it also the case that, that a witty person, someone who's truly funny, um, 
has to risk being untactful, right? The funniest people are often the people who are willing to tell <laughs> tell jokes about the stuff that you know you're not supposed to joke about. Um, so I just wanted to to get your your uh, your reflection on that possibility. Yeah, you know, Aristotle Aristotle's praise of of wit or tact is like sky high in a very weird way. He calls the witty person a law onto uh himself or yeah that makes you think of greatness of soul right the same kind of level of independence right and and so in a in an odd way i mean people who like you might think about like norm mcdonald is a i think like you think about like if you watch old norm mcdonald interviews where he's like so clear like i mean there are a number of things right on the one hand when you tell a joke and 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 by the way like i always find it funny to talk about wit because you know, here I am giving this like extremely nerdy and unfunny, you know, explanation of this Aristotelian <laughs> virtue. <laughs> like, let me explain to you why things are funny. Um, but I will do that anyway. <laughs> um, there is a kind of self-possession in the uh, in the witty person or in the funny person. And, and so, so you, if you watch like when Norm Macdonald died, I watched a lot of Norm Macdonald clips and you know, he is the thing that always stood out to me. And another Canadian, by the way. Yep, there you go. He, uh, he stood <laughs> out uh, uh, because of his self-control, it seemed to me, his reserve. Like, he's always just barely smiling. And um, and you can kind of see this, too. Like, other kind of really great comedians um, are sort of like this. Uh, uh, Larry David, I want to talk about his example in a minute. I think he's a really interesting exemplar of wit. Oh, maybe I need to write a new essay about wit. Anyway, uh, there's uh, this funny thing about wit. Aristotle says the witty person is a law unto themselves, um, and it's it's not just what the what of wit, but the how and uh, and the when and and the why and the specific person, the who too, right? Um, so the same joke which in the complete like taken completely abstractly someone might find very offensive i think a witty person can understand when the moment is right mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or the and, and that's why that person is a law onto themselves right that um there's a time for every joke and i think this is one of the problems with the internet that jokes become decontextualized right like and so it's a, the successful internet gag will be something that will work with the odd lack of context, right? That um, that allows the internet to. And in that way, it's actually a little different from, uh, I think, wit, um, that you have to provide your own context uh, when you make a joke online. Um, uh, whereas wit is obviously relational and what you're doing, the person who tells the joke is kind of in control of themselves. But on the other hand, what you're trying to elicit is a lack of control or a loss of control in the other. Mm-hmm. So is this like right, really right. fascinating, like mixture or dialectical embrace of like the, the poles of dependence and independence? Like the witty person is the most independent in the world. But why? Well, because the witty person understands the sub-rational uh, or, or the... Um, the the part of of laughter that uh, that you don't control that it's mm-hmm. this interruption of people's ability to fully kind of control themselves uh, and so wit's independence comes from an unusual amount of familiarity with the absurd with uh, the way that things don't fully make sense um and also and 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 perhaps especially the fact that human beings who are so self-serious you know often uh who are are rational beings can also be interrupted by laughter that 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 my own ability to kind of uh control myself direct my life is interrupted by by laughing and so the the witty person combines i think independence and dependence in a really interesting way because on the other hand you're completely dependent on your audience right like if you if you can't make somebody laugh then you don't have the virtue and like you need other people to do it and it needs to be successful um and it's a kind of independence that's couched kind of in social life 
Right. And it's also a good example you brought up at the beginning of, of our discussion. You brought up, um, you explained the distinction that in some sense makes perfect sense that there are these moral virtues that, that you acquire through habituation, intellectual virtues you acquire through teaching and, and, and learning, and, and one is associated with, with mind or, or reason, and the other is associated with the problem of desire. But the more you read the ethics, you know, it becomes clear that that separation can't simply be true. It seems to me that wit is a perfect example example of that. If you think about um, comedians like Norm Macdonald spend a lot of time writing, you know, at wherever they write, at, at home, at a, at a desk, and, you know, they write, they write jokes and revise jokes. And so clearly that's a intellectual skill, right? But on the other hand, the, the way that they become funny is by going out and doing a routine. And the most successful comedians, I think, will all tell you that they have to do it um, over and over and over and over again before <laughs> before it works. So, the, you know, the writing, the intellectual part of it is, you know, this, you know, a tiny bit of the of the success. And then it's it's a lot about um, doing it in front of the audience, kind of seeing their reaction and timing right i mean when do you say the the bit that you wrote you know so um wit seems to me a, a really interesting example of how the separation of moral and intellectual is is more difficult than it might might seem and you have to know like in order for so if as aristotle suggests elsewhere the ridiculous like we laugh at what is ridiculous right um so every every uh baby's favorite joke when when so when a, a baby is between 18 months and two years old if you want to one like with 100 percent certainty make well no nothing is this can't, this can't be so bad. <laughs> that's not too remember, confident i remember when i had my first daughter I, I was reading like a baby book or something and it's like 18 months babies love it when you put something that's not a hat on your head and i uh and i remember i went on i, I had just like a like a tea cozy and I and I put it on my head like flat and my daughter cracked up and since then I've tried this with like every time I encounter a child who's about this age I I do it I I put something you know that's not a hat on my head and they're like oh that's the funniest joke ever <laughs> right because at that age they're starting to figure out like okay well hats go on heads I have to wear a hat if it's sunny or if it's cold and this is a big part of a like a child's life right is hats and and what people look like and so they respond to like what is the ridiculous that they can understand it's like well this not hat thing is trying to be you're saying that this is a hat and it isn't and uh and and so you so you have to understand in order to understand what is ridiculous you need to understand the serious and so the intellectual part of wit is also understanding you know what is kind of both either what is conventional or what or something about nature like what is to be expected yeah and upending that and or presenting things that are normal in an unexpected uh or ridiculous manner right and that's kind of the turning part of it the eutropos kind of element of uh of being good at turning uh if you are uh a eutropolos is uh is is huge i think and and yeah it's it's but on the other hand, it's not like a totally cerebral or intellectual thing, right? Like, as I said, it's boring to explain what jokes are. Yeah. Uh, and also the same joke told by different people can would simply not necessarily work. And the funniest jokes, I think, are not actually prepared jokes, but a comment that somebody makes like a, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A, an extremely witty friend and part of you know, what makes, uh, I think him particularly witty, uh, is his, like, is that it's never the same joke twice. Right. I, I have a number of like, you know, set pieces that all kind of fall. I have bits. <laughs> I've, you know, my, my weakness as a comedian is I have bits and stories. I'm uh, a little bit more on the kind of stand up side. And I, I, like, I joke with my students that, you know, it's good. You only have me for four years because I run out of material by the end of that, those four years, I need to start over again. Right. That is is itself a bit, but um, but my my wittiest friend 
he has this kind of like it's always fresh and it's always kind of insightful and and interesting in that way that simply couldn't be predicted mm -hmm. yeah that's great the and and um i mean i think too the just just the idea of wittiness being a virtue just as important because i think if you asked most people now you know why are why are your why are certain friends funny that they would just say well they're just kind of born as funny right but it's not people i don't think appreciate that this is a kind of um learned behavior that that you can actually work on and if it is that right then it would be important you know if if you were if you wanted to develop into a virtuous happy successful yeah. uh human being right to to sign up, kind of think. Well, I I need to work on being able to amuse people, um, and that's an important virtue to to possess, and not simply think that. Well, if I have a, if there are a group of six or seven people, there is always going to be the one funny person, and you know he was born that way or she was born that way. But um, and you have to be willing yeah. to laugh, also, right? Yeah. I think that's the the other side of it, right? Like you, it's a concession to not being fully in control. Um, mm -hmm. it, to be not a tyrant, right? To not live tyrannically, to live politically is to rule and be ruled in turn. And so somebody who refuses to laugh in a, in a like important way, refuses to be ruled by others, to give oneself over, to trust that other people might have a vision of, of the right. good that is not fully um, available to me or not fully within sight. And, mm -hmm. and so you can often tell like, Somebody who will own like and, and again, you can see Aristotle's um, uh, uh, kind of schema of moral virtue is very useful here because someone who, you know, is always laughing or always making jokes um, uh, clearly doesn't have the virtue and somebody who refuses to laugh is lacking in something human, too. Right. And so in the in this weird way, like like, you know, think about Shakespeare, um, the comedies are uh frequently about like it, the the ability to laugh together right um uh suggests a kind of uh well-ordered community um in tragedies um you know the the humor is often i call it hobbesian humor because Hobbes says you only laugh at kind of violation and at uh um, you you kind of look down on people. So there mm -hmm. are these hum humorous moments in Shakespeare's tragedies. I'm talking about Shakespeare specifically. And, you know, there's, or if you're thinking about like ancient Greek tragedy, right? There are these darkly funny moments where Oedipus comes on stage and he's like, wow, I wouldn't want to be the one who did this, right? It was responsible <laughs> for all like, When I find him, he's right. going to regret it, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and that's kind of funny, but it, it's funny in a kind of cringy, uncomfortable way Whereas, you know, communities like to live in there's, a, there's an Oedipus like Larry David connection, maybe. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, OK, so here's my bit on Larry. I don't you, maybe you'll work out this. My bit on Larry David is that Larry David, um, the thing that people love, respond to in that show, I think, in part is that he well, I mean, two things. First, that he lives in a kind of tight community. Right. Um, people like Curb Your Enthusiasm because Larry visits the same places over and over again. It has this very kind of close group of friends. Um, and like, we know that Larry and Susie have this kind of fraught uh, relationship between one another. And it's funny to see them antagonize each other. Um, and, and so the thing that Larry will do is show the ridiculousness of our social conventions, right? Mm -hmm. it, with like unusual candor is willing to defy those conventions and then get offended, um, uh, and then get offended when uh, people are offended by his breaking of convention. And so, curb your enthusiasm is, shows at once the requirement of of convention to kind of get along. Because if everybody is Larry David, then society will simply stop functioning. And actually, you know, the series kind of plays with this at various points, right? Um, there has to be somebody willing to say to the blind, the 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 cut in chat um, people in lines, you know, so. I mean, maybe maybe uh, uh, buffets are gone for good after the pandemic or whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, there has to be someone who says, like, you can't do that. Right? Like, right. Cut in chat. Like, get in the if you want to talk with someone, get at the back of the line. Right. right. And as a Canadian, I always do that. I will 
Like if I want to talk to somebody in line, I'll say, do you mind if we if we go in the like if we move back a few spaces so we can both be in here and, and talk? But but yeah, Larry, uh, I think uh, in Curb plays with um, the the law unto yourself part of wit, right, where he he shows the parts of convention that are ridiculous. Um, and the the show itself in recent years has started making Larry the butt of the joke a little bit more, which, so Larry David, the character, does not fully recognize that he too needs to be kind of, that he can't be fully independent of the community. Right. But Larry David, the writer, it seems to me, wants to show that both movements mm -hmm. right, are necessary for comedy. Yeah. So there's That's my little- good. I like it. Uh, like exposition on enthusiasm <laughs> as a you know and and wit as well yeah <laughs> maybe that's a good place to to end we've we've done norm mcdonald canadian niceness larry david um uh, you gotta look up that musical Oedipus. uh come from away um it's uh that's the the musical say, say the name of it again well come from away so okay. in canada that's what we call people who move here who aren't from here uh, you're, a, you're a cfa or a come from away okay Forever. Okay. like you can my wife's parents have lived here for heavens almost 50 years and people still call them come come from a ways um because That's they're great. from ontario of all places imagine <laughs> um, <laughs> ontario and quebec yeah all right matt well it's been a pleasure thanks for coming on to to talk about aristotle and social virtue my pleasure talk to you later flag you've been listening to enduring interest a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening and see you next time on Enduring Interest. <laughs>